I'm Jim Shanahan, Dean of the Media School at Indiana University, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and in this case, a media executive, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Paula Kerger. Paula is the president of PBS, the Public Broadcasting Service. PBS is a producer and distributor of programs to a national network of over 350 television stations. It is the nation's nonprofit and public service broadcasting arm and has been notable for shows over the years such as Sesame Street, Frontline, and most recently, Downton Abbey. Before coming to public television, Paula held positions at the United Nations Children's Fund, or UNICEF, and at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Paula is also president of the PBS Foundation, which is the fundraising arm of PBS. Paula and her husband, Joseph Kerger, live in Washington, D.C. Paula, thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. It's great to welcome you here also uh, to participate in the Media School Speaker Series. We're very mm-hmm. excited about that, and I'm very glad to have this opportunity to sit down and talk with you as a longtime fan of public television and a long-time, having a longtime interest in television uh, here in the United States. So I guess my first question is, uh, you know, you've obviously grown up to be one of the the major television network executives in the country, was there media experience in your early youth or childhood that led you in that direction? Well, I think like many people, I grew up watching television. I have very early memories of sitting, what my mother used to always yell at me, too close to the television set watching, uh, you know, shows like I Love Lucy in reruns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it it certainly had an impact on my life in, in many ways. But my grandfather actually helped put the public radio station on the air in Baltimore, which is the town where I grew up. And he was a professor at the university, and he had this idea. He was interested in theater, but he was teaching a lot of broadcast engineers as they were coming out of World War II on the GI Bill. And he had this idea that a radio station would give his students real-world experience in what he was teaching in the classroom. And so I think somewhere far back there, there is definitely a public television, public media DNA connection that's propelled me forward. But no, I had no real sense that I would end up working in television or in public television. Well, before I asked you about the about that radio station, um, I probably watched all the same reruns of I Love Lucy yes. that you did. And um, television was a huge force in my life, although, again, at that time, I didn't know I'd be in this kind of career either. Is that public radio station still on the air? Yeah, WBJC And you grew Baltimore. up in Baltimore, mm-hmm. right? I think it's interesting that for um, – you know, to to think about radio versus television in our youth. My father used to say to me, um, he was very anti-television. He said, don't watch television. This is going to suck your brain yeah. out. And um, he was but a, a huge fan of radio, mm-hmm. a huge fan of radio. He thought it... Um, you know, expanded your imagination to listen to that. and uh, Well, they're, they're similar but different medium. And sometimes people confuse me for working at NPR. I always thank people whenever they make nice comments about Morning Edition or All Things Considered, and I never correct them. But they are, they are different and the same. I, you know, I remember when I was a little girl sitting with my grandfather, and, you know, he was a, you know, hardcore engineer. He had an oscilloscope in his basement. Mm-hmm. And he, I remember sitting sitting with him and he explained to me about radio waves because I could never understand how at night I would sit with him and you could listen to broadcasts from really far away and it felt magical and in fact it is. There's something so compelling about this idea of being able to, you know, send images or sound out into space and having it cover, you know, uh, and reach a wide section of people. But I think for me growing up, you know, radio is a very personal medium. You're right. It uses imagination. You can listen to a baseball game in a very different way than you watch a game. I actually prefer listening than watching, listening to the description and, you know, really feeling you know, sort of in a visceral way. And it's and it's I think it's more personal than than television. I'm a big fan of NPR and public radio. I listen to a lot of it and I, I think of it differently um, than public television because you do imagine the storytellers, you imagine the stories that are being painted, and it is that very personal experience. Television 
in in many respects is, you know, particularly for someone like me growing up, I grew up outside of Baltimore in an area that was somewhat rural. So there weren't a lot of kids around. I didn't have some of the same opportunities that other kids did. And for me, it was a connection to the world. Also being a young girl, watching television was hugely influential. So, you know, I talk about I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy, you know, if you think about those shows that you and I watched, they were screwball and she got involved in sort of wacky circumstances, but she always had this idea that there was a bigger mark that she wanted to make on the world. She loved being a wife and a mother, but she also had this greater aspiration. And then if you look at the next show, that really had an impact, certainly had an impact on me. It was the Mary Tyler Moore show. It was the first time there was a professional woman whose aspiration was not necessarily to get married, but was to develop a career. And it was it was hugely impactful for me as, as, as a younger woman, seeing that there were opportunities beyond what my mother and my grandmother used to always say to me is that maybe you should get a job as a teacher because you can do that until you get married and have children. And so I think television brought that all into my life. And I think about that a lot. I think about that in the work that we do at PBS. I think about, particularly for the young girls, what are the images the girls are seeing? What is, are there ideas that we can put forward so that people can see themselves and their own stories reflected? And are, are there ways that we can help children aspire to be something beyond what they may see in their own backyard? We have a new series that we're launching in um, January called Ready, Jet, Go, and it's an animated series uh, that's about astrophysics. And there is a real rocket scientist who is part of the show and who happens to be a very compelling and interesting woman. And I'm hoping by doing that, that there are little girls that are watching that will have this idea that science doesn't mean wearing a white lab coat necessarily, but that you it's cool and interesting and it could be something that a girl can pursue as well as a boy. I knew you were going to mention Mary Tyler Moore in in the next uh, in, in your chain of programs there, which is a program that I liked a lot too, and I think it's interesting for the boys who watched it as well. You know, Absolutely. young boys at that time to see that, and you know, while we may not have drawn uh, the conclusions that uh, were implied in Isle of Lucy, they were a little bit more obvious in Mary Tyler Moore, right. and a lot of other programs that came out around that time. We talk a lot here, especially in research that we do, usually focusing on. Um, sort of negative aspects of television violence and things like that, and those are real issues. Um, but it's clear that the time that uh, both you and I grew up in was was a time that television, to some degree, participated in social change. Absolutely. Does is that, So uh, does that issue raise its head for your decisions at PBS? Do you think explicitly about social issues when you're um, green lighting programs. How does that work? Well, we think uh, we certainly think about you know what are the important issues of our time and and how do we bring uh, discussion around them? Because I, I I think when we do our best work, uh, what we hope to do is provoke conversation. And and I I always say you know our, our aspiration at the end of the day is to bring light and not heat to important issues. And so you know we are at a period right now of you know the 50th anniversary of you know we just you know passed through the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. And if you look at all of these nodal moments, you know, moon landing, other things that, you know, really, you know, at our time, television was very much at the heart of bringing into every home. And it really did change the way that, you know, certainly the coverage of the Vietnam War, that war was brought into people's homes by Walter Cronkite and images every night that people really understood more about that war than I think had it not been part of ongoing coverage that was represented in television. And so I think that, you know, as we look at you know, the the range of programs that we cover, everything from history, and I can talk about some of the history work we have in development right now, both as pure documentaries as well as drama. And then as we look forward, you know, having these anniversaries as these nodal moments to be able to talk about you know, the issues that we continue to wrestle with, issues around race, issues around, you know, economic inequality, all of these pressures and challenges that certainly bubbled up 
50 years ago, 40 years ago, that we're still trying to resolve today. And so I think that, you know, it's interesting that we're using our television experience as a, as a prism to really think about, mm-hmm. you know, how as a society we have, you know, continued to move forward. You know, television has been uh, very much a part of of that story as not only the storyteller but also as a chronicler of of, of our history and, and how that's impacted us. I remember – I'm sure you did the same. You, did you stay up all night to watch the moon landing? I remember Absolutely, that. Yeah. I remember that so very well. And so, I mean, I think for me, you know, since your initial question is, you know, was there anything in my life that brought me to television, I just look at these moments that – were very powerful. I was too young to really remember a lot about the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. but I remember through a child's perspective. So it will be interesting to me next year when Ken Burns' next major series, which is on the Vietnam War, you know, really being able to think about what I'm remembering from every night's um, television broadcast because at that time my family sat around the table together and we always talked about the nightly news and how my memories as a child really compare against now that there's been this period of of, of history that has passed, the perspectives we have on that period of our history. It's interesting. Well, for sure I had all those same experiences and, and that's of course because television was the mass medium at that time. So we gathered around the nightly news, we gathered around to watch all in the family or, or the moon landing or what have you. And most of the major historical events are, in my memory, as a television event as well, certainly right. the moon landing. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about the future of that. So if, if a major event should happen tomorrow, you know, what percentage of people will experience that as a television event versus what percentage of people will experience that on their phone or in online or in a different way? Um, what, what are your thoughts on where the idea of sort of television with a capital T uh, is going. It also, in addition to television versus phone, but it's also where on television because, again, coming back to the experiences of our youth where there were a handful of channels and and there were large audiences that gathered around that electric hearth together, whether electronic hearth together, whether it was, you know, with Walter Cronkite or, or whatever. And now with so many different media choices and so many different platforms that people can go to. The experiences are so diffused. I think, you know, the one thing that I will observe is that there is no question there is an acceleration of people wanting to create their own media experiences on their time and on their schedule. And I think there's no turning back from that. People want to be able to download an entire season of a new series and watch it all in one fell swoop, or they may want to met it out over a period of months and sort of savor it. It's frustrating if you're watching a, a big series because it used to be, you you know, stand around the water cooler mm-hmm. or, you know, call your friends, what did you think of last night's MASH or what did you think of last night's installment of whatever the most popular series of the time? And now you begin the conversation with, are you watching <laughs> House of Cards? Have you seen this season? Have you finished? You know, and spoiler, and then you can figure out, and then issues. you can figure out whether you can have a conversation or not. But I think when there are major events, um, and you certainly see this in the audience ratings, I think people are going to multiple places. They're certainly going when there is 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 a major event. They're going to social media. They're going to different places to get a sense of what people are talking about. But they are gravitating back to you know places where they can you know, again, appreciate a wider part of the story. And I think television still does play a a predominant place, as does radio. I think people go to those two places, particularly during times of crisis, really trying to understand what happened, what are the, you know, what are the details? Sometimes we rake over the details, I think, to excruciating degree. But I think it, it, it is that need to really dive deeper. And that's where I think a television experience does fall into play. Not disaster, but again, looking at these event moments, sports are the same. You know, right. people will, you know, come together to watch a sports event are things like Downton Abbey. Now, right. you can watch Downton Abbey, you know, many ways. You can, you know, you can buy the DVDs if you want to do that and have it forever. But most people 
uh, know that you can, you know, watch it on a delayed basis on demand. You can, you know, you can watch it in streaming video form. You can get it. You know, you you don't have to work hard to be home on Sunday night at right. nine o'clock to watch it. What? Uh, but a lot of people do. Right. Well, because they want to have a social experience. So it's you want to watch a news event, you want to watch something where you don't want to have a concern about spoiler, and you also want to have an experience that you can share. And I think that's the interesting challenge in this media landscape. So as, a, as someone that's running a media organization, I always want to think about how do I give the person who wants an entire house of cards at one time – uh, or entire season, uh, entire series like the Roosevelts, which we did last year, Ken mm-hmm. Burns' last series, we released it all at the same time. But a lot of people also watched it on television. And I think figuring out how to sort of calibrate between the two is is really interesting. Well, you mentioned Downton Abbey, and, and I'm curious to know what percentage of questions that are asked to you are about Downton Abbey, probably a pretty A fair, lot, and then <laughs> ask, answer, ask me how many I'm willing to answer. So I'm not going to tell you about anything in this season except to say it's fantastic, and in fact, it is the last. It's the last season. I know that. We are one of those families that will be at home usually on Sunday night to watch that. Yeah. And will you be wearing costume? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten the costume yet. Yeah. Uh, is there an explanation for that show that, you know, the success of Why? it, uh, apart from that it's good writing or that it's interesting characters? You know, there's a lot of shows like that. Why this yeah. one? And why I mean, on PBS, too? Which yeah. Is- well, I think a lot of people ask me, you know, how do you explain it? And, you know, there is a lightning in a bottle you know, aspect to it. I mean, I think, you know, we put a lot of great effort into the programs we produce, and sometimes they just spark. No one, believe me, no one anticipated that Downton Abbey would ha- capture people's attention and globally. I mean, it's a, it is a, it is a huge success. I think, in part, I think programs just hit at the right time. I, I, I I'm always reminded when I look at the Broadway show Chicago. Mm-hmm. Broadway show Chicago, when it first premiered, premiered in the same year that A Chorus Line. It was 1974, I think, five, and certainly the mid-'70s. Same year, both shows premiered. A Chorus Line won all the awards. Chicago did reasonably well, somewhat forgotten. It had Gwen Verdon and Cheetah Rivera. It was fantastic. But it just didn't capture. It was restaged, relaunched, and you know now it's one of the longest running shows on on Broadway. It just you know obviously the film was done. It just it hit at a different time and it just stri- struck something. It's the same choreography. Um, you know it was restaged, but it's basically the same show, just different timing. I think Downton Abbey was successful because. One is that Sunday Nights on Public Television is a home for drama, and we do a lot of period drama. We do a lot of drama that's based on, you know, history or literature. It's based on an interesting period of time. I think we as a country are infinitely fascinated by, you know, the upstairs, downstairs. Mm-hmm. That was, in fact, for many years the most popular show on on public television. I think this particular show, you know, Julian Fellows writes every bit of dialogue himself. He lives those characters. I think it's, it is beautifully written. Someone said to me once that, you know, one of the great secrets of shows that are successful, dramas that are successful, are the characters you want to hang with was the mm-hmm. way that he described it. And, and that's exactly right. I mean, people are really interested in these characters. They care about them. Uh, the number of people that contacted me when uh, both Lady Sybil and Matthew died was astounding. I mean, people really cared about the, those characters. And there is such attention to detail. There's a historical consultant that works with the cast on the filming. The costumes are exquisite. It's just beautifully done. And I think that the time that it broadcast, too, just worked. It's in January. It's after the holidays. People are, you know, exhausted from, mm. you know, too much of too much. And, you know, it's, it is it is a engaging series that I think people have really appreciated because it appeals to multiple generations. You know, I t- people oftentimes tell me there's so few shows that I can watch them with my daughter and, you know, with my son and, and families are watching it. So well, it just I, I, it's just captured people's attention in that husbands way. Husbands and wives too, you know. Husbands so and wives too. I, I it's go, interesting. The early seasons 
husbands were a little embarrassed to say, I'm watching this and I know it's really a soap opera. I was but, I was embarrassed myself and I'm yeah. I'm no longer embarrassed. But, you know, it must have been three years ago. And and I said to my, my wife, uh, what are you watching there? And she said it's, you know, she told me what it was. And I said, oh, you can never get into those, you know. This one was amazing, though, because after about three minutes, it's like, yeah. who's it that? Hooks, who's yeah. that? Okay, now I'm in there, you yeah. know. So uh, it's very successful at sort of moving each character's story arc rather quickly, you know, right. so that it doesn't take a long time to get. That's, I think, and, part and, of it. And I think the role of women during that period, it's been yeah. very fascinating to watch. And, hey, the series began with the sinking of t- the Titanic, right. you know. <laughs> I mean, you know? Yeah. But, I think, uh, but I think a lot of people really have, you know, paid particular attention to the, the women characters. You know, they're very – it's very interesting within a relatively short period of time how much everything changed. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, now that we're talking about PBS shows, there's various PBS shows that that stuck out for me over the course of my life um, and and, um, wanted to ask you about their appeal of some of them. Uh, Bob Ross is one of my favorite shows of all time. I can't paint a lick. No, Um, I can't either. Wish I could. And um, how do we explain that particular show? I mean, I assume it's still running just about everywhere. It still runs, and I can't can't fully – explain it either. <laughs> I think there is something that's just so quirky and endearing with this guy with his big hair yeah. and somehow he makes painting seem possible yeah. for people that may not have any true talent at all. It seems like it's something that you can do. I don't I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and the voice is very Yeah. soothing. It's you know. it's a little trippy. I, I yeah. just don't I don't know how to explain it. There are many Saturday afternoons where um, I might have been watching a baseball game or something like that, and then clicked over to Bob Ross and gradually sort of fell asleep on the couch watching him paint a, a happy little tree, as he yeah. calls it. You yeah. know, my grandmother's favorite show growing up was Lawrence Welk. Mm-hmm. Again, very successful on mm-hmm. PBS, and still so, I would assume. On some stations. Not all stations still uh-huh. air it. but um, Is there a geographical appeal to that? Or? No, I, d- I think that there are – I think there are markets where there is an older audience because uh, clearly the Lawrence Welk audience appeals for the most part, not wholly, to uh, to an older group, which is not well served in media, by the way. Right. And so I think there and, – and I think there's also something very nostalgic about Lawrence Welk. Now, you know, obviously there are parts of the country like Minnesota where he's from that it still yeah. remains very popular. But – you know, I was I was just in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and the station continues to air it. And you know, there are a lot of people that you know still love to see Lawrence Welk. My station in New York did not, right. but had I think uh, for a number of years. I think it's it's it very much appeals to people that um, I think are drawn to that kind of nostalgia. Well, whenever I whenever it comes on, I, I'm fascinated to. To tune in for a bit, look at the costumes from the mm-hmm. 70s and mm-hmm. some sort of technicolor, you mm-hmm. know, brightness that was going on then. We're, we're doing profiles here on WFIU. I'm Jim Shanahan, the dean of the media school at Indiana University, and our guest is Paula Kerger. Let's talk uh, about you a little more. So you went to school in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you study, and did that in any way lead into a media career? No, and I had a checkered college career, I'll admit. I uh, started out in pre-med and then hit organic chemistry, and that was the end of my pre-med career. And I talk to kids about this a lot, college kids a lot, because college kids many times, which was the case when I was young and, and continues to be the case today, feel like they have to have their whole life figured out that everybody else has it organized and somehow they are the only ones that don't. And, of course, most people don't. Um, so I really didn't. And um, so after medical school was not in the cards, I decided that I would take humanities classes because I was really interested in art and history and literature. And so I just took a smattering of classes and then truly panicked that I would never leave home because I could never be gainfully employed. (laughs) And so I got a degree in business with no real idea of what I was going to do with it. I had been working uh, later years when I was in college for a bank. And so I, you know, had some real world experience in the in the business world, but I, I just really wasn't sure how all the pieces were going to fit together. 
And I was very lucky. I applied for a job that I was completely unqualified for, uh, working for UNICEF. And I applied for a job running their office in Baltimore, which was my hometown. I was completely unqualified. The guy that interviewed me, why he interviewed me, I'm not sure, and called me afterwards and said, you're not qualified for this job. But um, would you be interested in going to Washington? Because we have another job that I think would be right for you. And I took it. Uh, and so I ran some fundraising for them in Washington, and it was UNICEF that gave me the opportunity to move to New York, where I always wanted to live, and run the National Halloween Program, Trick or Treat for UNICEF. And so I did that as a young woman. I was very lucky in that first job in that I realized fairly early on that the nonprofit sector was the place where I wanted to be. I had never thought about that as a career. As a girl growing up, my parents were very involved in the community. I used to go door to door with my grandmother uh, raising money for the Heart Fund. So we were always very involved. But I thought that's what you did. I didn't realize that you could actually do that and that would be your life. And so I worked uh, at UNICEF. I got a job after that working for an organization of, uh, that had been supported by the Rockefeller family. It was International House. I was interested in international issues. And I uh, was recruited to work at the Metropolitan Opera. In both of those jobs, I was raising money. And so I was hired for the Met not to sing, believe me. This is the great disappointment in my life that I have no talent. I, When I was young, I thought I would be the, the next Joni Mitchell. That was not to be. But I, I loved the arts. I still love the arts. And the opportunity to work in a place like the Met was fantastic. I raised money for them. I really enjoyed the opportunity to learn more about an art form that I didn't know a lot about when I was hired. And I was recruited from there to go to the public television station in New York, Channel 13, to help them run and finish a big capital campaign. And mm -hmm. so I came into public media actually through raising money for the station. I finished the campaign. The then president of the station said to me, you know, you have aptitude for this business. And he said, I think you would make a great station manager. He was, by the way, the same person that discovered Oprah Winfrey. Oh. Not that I put us in the same category. I do not. <laughs> but he was, as with her, was willing to take a risk on someone that he saw promise. Um, and so he gave me the opportunity to uh, to be the station manager. It was uh, It was a huge leap for him, and it was frightening for me because I cared about the station a lot, and I thought, gosh, he's bet a lot on someone that, you know, really doesn't have years and years of television experience. But I had been part of the management team, and I had been very involved in setting some of the strategies and being part of all the discussions, and I had some involvement with the program schedule, and I love television, and he was right. I, I did a pretty good job there. And from there, I was recruited to take the job at PBS. A lot of the those experiences you just mentioned, I remember them very well because I grew up near New York City. And I remember the trick-or-treat for Eunice, mm -hmm. which was a huge campaign at the it time, I remember, campaign. you know, for, yep. for five to ten Halloweens, I can remember yep. it was... Uh, All those little it, orange containers. I, I can visualize them. That yeah. was your... Um, that was that my was your project. Baby. Oh, yeah. well, yeah. that's a cool one. Uh, and the Met, um, the Metropolitan Opera, to... To me, the stereotype would be there's a lot of drama there, divas, divos, uh, high society donors. Is that is that it, what it that's was, like? Everything about the Met was a little larger than life. Yeah. And uh, I, when I took that job, I, you know, I, I'd been hired to raise money. I, I made a point of telling them when I was hired because I, I that I wanted to make sure they knew that I was not uh, someone who knew, you know, because. Diehard opera fans, some of them have such a range of knowledge that I knew I could never, you know, touch. And they actually were interested in me because I was not such a crazed opera fan. They knew that I loved music and they knew that I had uh, enough knowledge that I would learn what I needed to learn, but that I wouldn't be hanging out at the stage door hoping to hang out with opera singers. And it was fantastic. There were there were speakers in every office that were connected to the main stage. And I listened every day to rehearsals because I was so insecure that I didn't know a lot about opera. And it was in the heyday of, of Domingo and Pavarotti. It was when the Met did two new productions. They had not done new productions in a long time. They did Voyage by Philip Glass. I loved Philip Glass. So mm -hmm. I was even a bigger oddball at the Met yeah. because I loved 
contemporary Modern, opera, yeah. not exactly what the Met is known for producing. Uh, but they also did John Corleano's Ghost of Versailles with Teresa Stratus, who clearly is one of the great singers of our time. And uh, she had not performed in a long time, and I listened to every rehearsal as they sort of worked through the production. She played Marie Antoinette. The role was written for her. And when they put it on stage, a lot of people were concerned that she would never be able to actually appear, that it was just, you know, a bridge too far. But she did it. She did every performance, and it was extraordinary. And I feel blessed that I had an opportunity to hear it as it was being developed and actually see that production. And I do remember um, WNET in those days as well. What were some of the shows that came out of there in those days? Nature, great performances, mm-hmm. American Masters, the News Hour, the New York part of the News Hour, Charlie Rose. Charlie Rose went national as a show this my first day at Channel 13. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget walking in, and there's Charlie Rose sitting in the president's office, and I thought, this is going to be an amazing job. And uh, so I, uh, it's it was a it was a great uh, experience working in a place like that. That not only was the television station for New York, but also produced so much of, particularly so much of the arts content that's seen in public television. Live from Lincoln Center comes from there. Let's um let's talk about kids a little bit because mm-hmm. you know in the old days that we were talking about, there'd be shows on Saturday morning. Of course, they were all sort of sugary and. You know, yeah. fun, that kind of thing. And there w- there was some educational things obviously going on on PBS or the networks that came before it. Um, what's your view of the landscape for children's television these days and yeah. PBS's role in it? We're, um, we're very focused on kids' programming. And actually, if you look at the networks now on the, we- on the weekends, there really isn't a lot of children's programming there anymore. And I think that, you know, when we think about programming um, for kids, we really focus principally on uh, early childhood. We think about children that are living in homes that may not have computers, that may not have books, but that have access to television. And we figure that if we can reach those kids, then we can reach a broader cross-section of kids. And all of our programming is not just safe and not just educational, but it's actually built on core curriculum we work with and have over the years worked with experts in early childhood education. And we focus on those basic skills that kids need to master before they enter school. It's the basic literacy skills. It's basic you know, skills in math. But what is becoming increasingly important, we recognize, uh, particularly in talking to teachers that are responsible for managing classrooms, is that kids also have some understanding of the basic social-emotional skills, you know, how to pay attention, how to deal with disappointment, how to control your, how to control your emotions, because kids that can't do that when they enter into the classroom really start to slide behind pretty quickly. You know, so for television, that's a big piece of what we do. We also recognize that there are a lot of kids that are using smartphones, usually not theirs, usually ones that belong to their parents. If you sit in a restaurant, you often mm-hmm. see a parent <laughs> whip out a phone and, you know, pull something up and, and occupy the kid, which I think is both good and bad. Um, good in that if you're sitting at the next table, it's quiet. But Challenging also because I think you you need to figure out that balance of also helping kids develop their their social skills and I and you know of course parents are constantly wrestling with both of those but I I think that more and more kids are using tablets or are using smartphones and using computer and they're great spaces for educational content because they're interactive. And so we've been very interested in, you know, creating apps and in creating content on those spaces. So when someone comes to us with a new project, we want to see something that's television plus has all these other pieces. You know, there are a lot of kids' channels now. There's Disney. There's Nick. There's others. And there's some good stuff there. I wouldn't suggest that the only good programming on television is, is on public television. But I would argue that we're the only ones that are really thinking very hard about all that core curriculum and making sure that we're developing out. The flagship of that over the years was Sesame Street. What's mm-hmm. the arc of that since its inception, I guess, in the late 60s or early 70s? It's so it was, it was the first of really – I mean, Joan Cooney really did have the vision um, – 
that you could use television and, in fact, some of the principles that were used in advertising, not just to reinforce promotional messages, but to really use them for educational purposes. And so it did change the way that people thought about children's television. Prior to that, literally in most markets, the guy that was the weatherman would put on a clown suit and you'd run (laughs) commercials and you'd had sort of wacky stuff. And, you know, Sesame Street really sort of brought you know, all of the educational potential to television into focus. The show has continued to evolve over the years and uh, continues to um, to change. If you look at Sesame Street when it first went on the air 40-plus years ago and you look at it now, it's it's a very different show. And in fact, this year it is a very different show because it's also gone to a half an hour. It was for many years an hour show. And it was a bit of an oddball because it was the only one-hour show on, on television. I think you know that um, they're also partnering with HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the show will also air on HBO. In fact, they are largely paying the production costs for the show. It's a very expensive show to produce because of the fact that it's both Muppets and a lot of live action animation. So it is one of the more expensive of the children's shows. And so, you know, HBO is helping to uh, defray the costs that they used to be able to defray from licensing of the characters. And we'll continue to get the show. And in fact, because HBO is putting money in, we'll be able to get more episodes. So um, it was jarring, I think, for a lot of people when Sesame made the decision that they were going to partner with HBO because it's been so much at the heart of public television. And, I, you know, I think that anything that allows, you know, more content to be developed, you know, I I hope will work well. You know, it's, it, it will air on HBO beginning in, I think, January. Do and you have other kinds of partnerships like that? For we have other programs? partnerships not quite like this. We partner with a lot of other media organizations, uh, again, because our, our budgets are relatively small. I think, you know, I often tell people, you know, we, we punch so far above our weight. I mean, you know, our entire program budget is less than what a what a channel like HBO would spend to promote a really big series. And so, you know, we've always been very careful to steward the monies that we have uh, in ways that we can really leverage them. And so we build partnerships in news. We work with, you know, we work with partners within public media. We're, we're doing more with public radio now than we've ever done before. But we also partner with organizations like Univision and others. We work with print journalists. We work with uh, the BBC. We work. We've always had a history of working with other public broadcasters. We've done some work with NHK in in Japan, and that's how we're we've been able to cobble together this this HBO deal is a little different. And I people ask me if that's the model for the future, and I I don't think so. I think this was a unique circumstance, and you know we'll see how this plays out. Well, of course, you know there's discussions now about. Uh, too much television, and um, and, and all um, all television program producers are facing a, a market that's that's tighter and tougher. And of course, the the PBS funding model is different than most everyone else. Right. Well, what's the financial future for for PBS? Well, I, I think our financial look. We've never been overfunded. That's one constant from our you know beginning. I think what. Um, has served us well is that, you know, we are largely funded by lots of small gifts from people around the country. And I think that's kept us anchored, you know, to local communities pretty, pretty well. I think the other thing that is important about our funding is that we do get funding from multiple places. We get a small amount of government funding, which for the most part really goes directly to stations and it enables stations, particularly in rural parts of the country, frankly, to exist. There's lots of stations in parts of the country that if there were no government funding, they would not exist. So it helps to pay for, you know, basic infrastructure. It's 15 percent of our overall funding, by the way, one five. I think we're one of the most effective public-private partnerships Does that ever. Does the same radio. over the years? And it has been pretty much the same over the years. We get a little bit of uh, corporate support, some corporate support. We get some foundation support that's been tremendously helpful, but really it's individual philanthropy that's been the lion's share. And I think because of that funding, you know, we haven't fell prey to the same commercial pressures of doing mm-hmm. things just because they're popular. I think people value the fact that we try to do things that are different. Uh, we are living in a period of a lot of great drama. 
We ask ourselves hard questions when we commit to drama, whether this is different from what everyone else is doing. We're awash in reality shows. I think that's starting to ebb a little bit. We actually are seeing now that, you know, just, you know channels like Discovery and Nat Geo are looking at doing more um, science and natural history like we've done because we've been successful with it. We're the fifth most watched of all media organizations. I think people don't have an understanding that our audience is significant. 89% of the country watches PBS at some point. And so, you know, we are able to reach everyone, whether you have cable or not, you know, through over-the-air television. And, and so um, I think that you know, as we look forward, people always ask, you know, do you think you'll continue to, um, you know, use the same business model? We are the original crowdsource, you know, with uh, the way that we funded ourselves. And I think that um, I would hope that we would stay anchored in, in individual f- support. I think that does make a difference with what we're able to achieve. You mentioned being um, insulated from commercial pressures. It, has there been a commercial creep over the years? And, and I remember early days of PBS, you'd have a very discreet announcement, you know, at the right. be, at the beginning of a program. And um, how has that changed over the years? Yeah, so it used to be we would put up a blue card with white letters <laughs> that said, with a voice that said, "Thank you, Payne Weber," or "Thank right. you, Exxon Mobil." But now, um, you know, you know, companies are very, and you see it with other nonprofit organizations. You go to uh, you know, an arts performance, and you may see the car in front of the theater, you know. So I think that, you know, we're not immune to that. And But we have very specific restrictions of what we'll do and what we don't do. We want to create an uninterrupted viewing experience for viewers. We want to make sure that the spots we do are appropriate. We actually, every few years, we sit down with um, panels of viewers and really ask their feedback. Or, you know, have we crossed the line? Are we doing things that feel appropriate to you for public media or not? Our corporate funding is important. It's been We have a lot of wonderful corporate partners that have been with us for years and some new ones that have come in. And, you know, we really work hard to make sure that we're not crossing that line into something that feels too commercial. Now you talked earlier about your interest in in music. What are the what are the kinds of music you 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 enjoy apart from opera and uh, Joni Mitchell? I guess yeah, your I do other, like your Joni Mitchell. Yeah. I I have really eclectic taste. I like a lot of music, and um, and music is something that. I have on all the time. I like I like being introduced to new types of music. I like jazz. Uh, jazz to me is a little intimidating. Mm-hmm. You know, um, jazz to me is in the same category as opera. When I mm-hmm. when I talk to people who are jazz aficionados, I feel like they know so much and I know so little. You know, and they probably like that. <laughs> yeah, and they do like that. Usually, people <laughs> like to tell me what I've missed. And right, you know. but um, you know, I love I love standards. I love. I love voice. You know, I grew up during the period of great rock. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I listen to a blend of a lot of things. There's some music that, you know, I I would say I, I don't listen to a lot of hip hop, though there are some that I really appreciate. You mm-hmm. know, so I, I try not to close myself to anything and, and listen to as much as I can. I had a friend who told me that at least every every genre has at least one genius of it, whether you like it or not. If it's Correct. disco or or accordion music or, you know, hip-hop or what have you. And I've found over the years that's true. So especially as I move around the country, just having moved here from from Boston, some of the music on the radio is different. And, you know, you check that out. And to me, music is a soundtrack. I'm like you. I have it on all the time. Yeah. Uh, The uh, the jazz aficionado can be a little bit snobbish, I guess. I think I read that jazz is currently the least popular music by, you know— music sales. Um, yeah, but it's, so, it's, but it's, it's, it's to me, it's, it's like it's a so life powerful blood. and it's you know it is such a pure American art form. Um, I've you know I've mentioned Ken Burns a couple times. The next big project he's working on is the history of country music, and mm-hmm. he has the working title of "I Can't Stop Loving You." And I you know it's when you look at at music and you look at to me music is the most evocative of. Uh, and I think that's in part why radio is also so powerful. You you hear a piece of music, it takes you back to a time in your life and or it takes you back to an experience. And it's hugely powerful. I have, you know, lots of song lyrics, you know, tucked away in my brain somewhere that I don't even remember is there, but I'll hear a piece of music. I'll start to hear a piece of music and then suddenly it all comes out. You know, it's it clearly is something that is um, – 
is is very an important part of of me, but I think I'm not unique in that. I it's think definitely we all have that experience. Kind of a Proustian, you know, you hear something and it's then like you're like the Madelines, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then you and then you're back at that time. One thing that I miss terribly and as hokey and as commercial as it was then was the Top 40 radio. I loved that, Top 40. That was, yeah. you know, the soundtrack of our existence. Exactly and, right. And um, that's probably a bygone era, I guess. Um, um, but but, but yeah. songs pop out and artists yeah. definitely pop yeah. out. You look at, you know, what's now going on with Adele and this, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. album that she's releasing, that single within a week, you know, had, you know, millions and millions of downloads. You know, it's, it's you know, we think that we lose these moments where you can right. have these larger collective experiences, but um, – but they're there. I just think they're 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 just a little harder. And then you know you can talk about. I mean, we could sit and talk about anything. This is a pleasure talking to you. Mm-hmm. You know, you can talk about you know what happens when you've got either radio or experiences like Pandora that open yeah. you up to different things. You like this, and suddenly you're listening to someone and some artist that you've never heard before. Yeah. And that's also powerful. So, uh, But I do miss the top 40. Well, I cling to things like CDs and vinyl I albums. I do, too. And, I have a lot. Yeah, and Squirreled away everywhere. Part of me that says, you know, you, you talk about the downloads or Adele, and that, that will be, you know, maybe my daughter's nostalgic experience 30 years from now. And um, but to me, there there was something about having that little 45 mm-hmm. or that album that you could read the notes and go yeah. into the store. And, and you'd open it up. Yeah. You'd buy the album. You'd come yeah. home. You'd open it up. You'd put the, rate, the record yeah. on your turntable. We have a— It's like an appointment— Listening. And you would listen to it, and the sound is different. You know, I know CD sound is, is supposedly crisper and everything, but there's something about vinyl. Yeah. Uh, we have a uh, project that we're doing that actually we're, is going to broadcast in the spring called American Epic, and it's it's basically – it's the Lomax story. It's oh, okay. It's basically – you know, the first effort to record music around the country, and it was fueled by the fact, it's an interesting story on so many different levels, it was fueled by the the fact that electrification was propelling radio and suddenly the sale of records was plummeting. Mm -hmm. And so there was the development of this device that was that worked on a pulley system. So the weight would fall. You would sing into the tube if you saw the film, Oh Brother, Where Art. Right. That's, that yep. very much captures that. And um, and so musicians were recorded in places that, like West Virginia and Appalachia and throughout the South and in places like Hawaii. And some of that music had never been heard outside of their communities, and it really did shape everything from, you know, rock and roll to everything that, that followed. And so we've worked with uh, T-Bone Burnett, Jack White and Robert Redford on a documentary series that will air next year, which is part of it is about the recording. And then the other part is bringing together musicians to um, not only perform some of that music, but music in that style. Um, and it's it's just fascinating. It's fascinating when you really think about how much music really does convey about the human spirit, but also about culture and so forth. And and the the quality of that sound, very different than what you're hearing on CDs or downloads or anything else, I think will open up people's minds about music in different ways. And, and, in, and in some cases, I think bring people back to vinyl. Music on television can be very interesting because sometimes it's not done very well and, and you somehow lose the, the connection to the music. And in other cases, and, and I guess you're talking about kind of a documentary approach here. Yeah, part of it's documentary and yeah. part of it is performance. performance. Um, yeah. PBS has been really good for me about just being exposed to different kinds of music, whether it's things I would normally listen to and certainly was, you know, paid a lot of attention to Ken Burns, jazz films, those kinds right. of things. But other things that I wouldn't have listened to so much – both PBS nationally and sometimes locally when you've got sort of local music going on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really fascinating. I think there are, you know, there are cultures and times that have a real genius for music. And certainly America in the past 50 or 60 years has been one of those. I agree. And, uh, and seems to be going on despite all the change in media. Mm-hmm. Speaking uh, uh, about media change, the B in PBS stands for broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Um, Will that letter always be there, or what would the what would a future PBS look like in a non-broadcasting era? 
So, you know, obviously this is the critical question for anyone that is in media is where will people be watching? And right now, you know, a lot of people watch broadcast. People watch programming they're receiving through cable and satellite. They're watching on their Apple TV. They're watching on a Roku box. They may be watching on a tablet streaming through an app. They may be watching in in multiple places. And I think, you know, for us, what we've tried to do is put our content there, but really create the architecture so that not only we have national PBS content, but the content that is created here in Bloomington is also alongside of that and connected all to the station. So how do we do that? Sounds like magic. Not really. I mean, we're basically creating metadata that is put on all these different places, and it's all localized. So if you have an app and you load it up, we know that, you know, we don't know, but you know, the device knows that um, you're in this region and will bring you the content from this region. If you buy a Roku box or Apple TV, you have to set it up and you'll pick a local station and it'll bring that to you. So I think people get hung up on, well, what's going to happen to TV? I think the important thing is, to me, it's all TV. It's all video storytelling. And we just need to be vigilant in making sure that wherever people are going, we're connecting with them through those experiences. How that will continue to be funded? How do we make sure that people still connect with their stations? I mean, these are all the questions that we're wrestling through. But I think the first step is making sure that it's the station that's there, not just Ken Burns or American Masters or any of our great series. And so I I think it's exciting, actually, because it really, you know, in the old days, you created something on television, it sort of went up on the satellite, and then it went out into space where those images are still beaming somewhere. And you just hoped that it was going to hit someone right at the time that they were interested in watching it. And the thing about all these devices is that it really can be organized in a way that people can find it when they want it. And I think that potentially creates a larger audience. The challenge of it, of course, is there's more of it and there's more clutter. And so figuring out ways that you stand out. So I think the quality of the content and, frankly, the brand are what I think hopefully will connect people to the stories that matter to them. We need to wrap up a little bit here. When you're not watching PBS, if that ever happens, (laughs) what kind of things do you like to watch on television? I do like I like drama. So, you know, so I'm really enjoying this time that we're in. So I, you know, so I do watch drama. I don't because I do travel a lot. I I don't watch as much television as I would like. I like a few of the competition shows. So my, you know, my dirty, you know, secret that I... Guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. That's what I was helping for. Not dirty secret. Guilty (laughs) pleasure is uh, I like Chopped. I, you know, I right. just, you know, because I like the fact the show resolves. I like short fiction That's too. Not too bad. It Chopped resolves. Pretty, it, it resolves in yeah. a half an hour, and it's exciting. It's interesting to see how people put stuff together. And I've learned a lot about cooking by watching the show. Yeah, well, we all have our dirty secrets too. I, I, excuse me, guilty pleasure. <laughs> I do enjoy watching Dancing with the Stars with my wife. It's a fun show. Things it like that, fun. and uh, I don't mind admitting it. Well, listen, Paula, thank you very much. This was fun. For coming. Yeah, it was fun for me too. Uh, So thanks for being with us. This is Jim Shanahan for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.